if you look at the content that people consume, social media, TV, whatever, it is incredibly polarized. If you turn on Fox News versus NBC, you're going to see a totally different version of the same, quote, facts. Now, why that's important isn't so much that it's a distortion of reality. It's that it's polarizing us against other people. It is the exact opposite of creating what we talk about in the book, which is the several types of empathy, specifically cognitive and compassionate empathy. Now, why that's important is that empathy allows us to have strong relationships. Strong relationships are consistently associated with better physical and mental health, better brain function into our old age. So the way that I look at this is that we are compromising our health right now and our long-term health because of the fact that the news media is taking advantage of these short-term kind of fear-laden circuits that polarize us against other people, create all of this fear, and take us away from the types of decision-making, the types of physical and mental health that are conducive to general wellness. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today you will finally find out why you continue to make choices that aren't aligned with your goals and the person that you want to become in the future. And what I believe you will discover after listening to this is that you've been quote unquote brainwashed. And I don't mean this necessarily in a manipulative way. It's more or less referring to the pivotal role your environment plays in all areas of your health and how it's also closely related to our ability to make decisions, fight inflammation, build meaningful relationships, manage stress, and more. And so father and son duo, Drs. David and Austin Perlmutter join me on the show today. Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and is published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. Dr. Austin Perlmutter is a board-certified internal medicine physician and New York Times bestselling author. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. So ultimately, they are here today to help you understand where this massive disconnect between our goals and our decisions stems from, and how your brain is being trained to behave impulsively based on environmental patterns, habits, and the daily choices that we make. The good news is, is that we talk about the path forward so that you can begin to rewire your brain to make better decisions, achieve your goals, optimize your health, and become the best version of you. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Drs. David and Austin Perlmutter to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. David Perlmutter and Dr. Austin Perlmutter, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be with you today, Doug. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and I got to admit, I believe this is the first father-son interview I've ever done on the podcast. And I was excited to talk to both of you because I think you both, just given your background and you bring a lot of value from different parts. 
of the area of medicine, science, nutrition that I think the audience is going to get a lot out of. But the one of the questions I wanted to start off with is being that you guys are in business together, so to speak, not like in practice, but just with the book and everything. And a lot of people during their lives or even during the pandemic, their relationships with their family have been pushed further apart. And it seems like you guys have obviously come closer together. What are some of your best practices? If you guys could each maybe provide one or two that have helped keep your bond strong as a father and son, and you're able to separate like the family from the business. That's a great question. Dad, you want me to start on this one? Sure. Sounds great. All right. In for background here, my dad has obviously done a lot more than I have in this space. He's written books before he's been involved in business ventures before he's worked with a lot of people before on my end, I did my medical training. There's not a whole lot of entrepreneurial spirit when you're spending 80 to 100 hours in the hospital. And then finishing that and coming out and working on this book and the subsequent projects with my dad, it's been a totally different world. I am lucky in that my dad and I have had a good relationship that has also lent itself to more general advising as well as things in related to medicine. Obviously, both of us are doctors. And so there's a lot to talk about there. But I think what helps is we both have a fascination with similar topics in the health space. And so as long as we're both on the same page, as far as why stuff matters, and how it's beneficial to a person who is consuming it, whatever that might be, dietary recommendations, book recommendations, podcasts, we do, I think it's been pretty easy. There are some things where we disagree a little bit. And I feel like of any part of the process, the experience of disagreeing with your father and working through that, as opposed to just saying, hey, we disagree. And that's just what it is, because you can't have that stand when it relates to making business decisions, book decisions, whatever. So that process has been really helpful for me. And definitely something we keep working at. We don't always see eye to eye on everything that we are looking at in the scientific literature. But It turns out that the basic stuff that we both advocate for, I think in our personal lives, as well as in our uh, medical advice, is very much the the essence of what people have been advocating for millennia. So it's hard to argue against mindfulness and meditation. It's hard to argue against exercise and sleep. And it all comes back to those things in what we tell people they should be thinking about and what we prioritize in our own lives. Yeah, it's so true. And I, yeah, obviously your father and David's done that being David, so to speak, has done so much in his time and it's incredibly inspiring. And I remember when Grain Brain came out, I've been a trainer for almost 10 years and it revolutionized in a way, the, the way that people see the effects of carbohydrates on the brain. Because what I found is it's normally, not always, but it's in silos. Like you're either in the brain or you're either in nutrition. It's not both. And the way he blended that together, I think was very inspiring. I definitely want to get into both of you, both y'all's inspiration on combining the, like having the multifaceted approach when it comes to medicine and the brain, which I think is, is, is missing in today's culture. But David, I wanted to punt it to you briefly and, and talking about as being the guy who you got started first and have accomplished so much. And now you bring your son along for the ride with you. What things have you done to make sure that you've strengthened the relationship with Austin during this time and using these challenges as opportunities for growth for the two of you? I would say that it's really important to understand that it is a two-way street. It's not as if I brought Austin along, that I have learned as much from him, if not more, than I would suspect he has learned from me. Because as, I don't mean to sound too elderly, but you get in your ways. 
And it's extremely good for a person and refreshing to be challenged and to, to be forced to look at things from a different perspective. And I heard an interesting word yesterday, and the word was consider. And it was actually, I had, we had JJ Virgin came to visit with her husband for Valentine's Day. And she was talking about how she was working in a jail with somebody who saw the world as being negative, whatever it was. And she said to this person, consider the following. And whatever she said to consider, I don't even remember. But just the fact that you are challenged to look at things in a different way, a way that is not necessarily going to speak to your frame of reference perfectly is an absolutely good thing. So when Austin says, yeah, we didn't, just, we didn't agree on everything, some of the science and the interpretation of the science, et cetera, we, we come up with the third possibility that we're both right, we're both kind of wrong. And that is really good because that's progress. That's how you then develop these novel ideas and interpretations, for example, of what we might be reading that put a smile on both of our faces and help us really get to the goal of understanding whatever it may be. So it's two people from different generations happen to be father and son, which is, I think, probably the, it's a real gift. But from two generations at the, you know, the outset, different perspectives on the banalities of how to use technology, which dad had to learn a little bit more, as well as how do you interpret statistics that relate to scientific uh, studies, et cetera. And is it fair to jump from animal models to human models in this instance, et cetera. And then coming to a place of realizing that we both kind of are invested in a certain position. How do we resolve that in the context of writing a brainwash? How do we resolve that so that this chapter, for example, that we're working on this page or this paragraph comes together in a place that we can both be comfortable with, that it really resonates with a place where we're both, we didn't have to bend too much, yet we did bend to some degree to acquiesce to the other uh, person's ideas. So it was a great experience. And it, truth of the matter is we've been doing that for many years, we're coming to consensus about where we should go spearfishing. Is this reef going to hold fish? Wh whatever it may be, all the stuff that we do. So it's always respectful. And to take that lesson that these two individuals happen to be father and son have learned and extend that, at least in my life, and I'm sure in Austin's life, to our other interactions with other people, be they family members, close friends, or strangers, I think is exceedingly valuable, especially in this day and age, when it's either my view or no view. It's either the way I think, whether it's Democrat, Republican, whatever the, the affiliation may be is the right way and the other side is the wrong way. This is extremely beneficial, whether you're writing a book or trying to figure out your life destiny. It's really good to be able to appreciate other people's viewpoints. And in fact, this is one of the central themes of Brainwash. Yeah, empathy. I know it is a big topic in the book. And it's just one of the things that I know is, is part of this blueprint boot camp 10-day detox that you guys have in the book to help people unwire a lot of the, the bad patterning and brainwashing, so to speak, in the brain to move it to a more productive, proactive, happy approach to live your life. And, and the one thing that kind of stands out to me is you guys, it seems like you still like to have fun together. Like I heard you guys both on a podcast and I think Austin was talking about Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. And then David, I think you were talking about Sean Connery and you guys are still able to have this healthy banter. And, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are born in different generations and there's this huge disconnect, 
because of the age and because of the time they grew up. Like David, I'm sure social media, obviously, when you were a kid, just wasn't around. And now Austin is grown up with social media in his face all day, every day. So I think being able to have his expertise just from experience of being active on these apps on a regular basis played a pivotal role in the the topics of the digital exposure and the disconnection syndrome, which you guys talk about. And then you obviously with your, your veteran history in, you know, neurology and then getting into nutrition, obviously you were able to, I'm sure help him along. And, but I think, he, I think what I found in the book is you both contribute like very evenly and it came out to be this blend of just not only knowledge, but simplicity because I think sometimes when you read books about the brain, it's like, gosh, I got to put this thing down. My brain's fried. You guys simplified it very well. But I think to get things started, and either one of you can answer this. And I, I alluded to this a, a few minutes ago. I said that it seems that a lot of people, they're either straight neurology, they're straight neurologists, and they just focus and stay in their lane on the brain, or they get into nutrition. And I think what is great in this book is you blended both and said, okay, like here's here's the root causes of what, what contributes to the brain and nutrition, exercise, meditation, relationships all play a part. So what got you going down this path to know that it wasn't just looking at the brain that, that needed to be talked about? Oddly enough, it happened in this very room where I'm sitting right now. I think, Austin, I was over on the couch, I think, and you were here. And we were just kicking around. And one of the most frustrating things about practicing medicine is bad outcomes right? We want our patients to do well. And so what success depends upon in a doctor-patient relationship is the following. A, that the doctor has information that she or he has learned. B, that the doctor conveys that information to the patient. And C, that the patient then engages that information, acts on what he or she was given, the gifts that you imparted to that patient. So much emphasis is spent on our education, which is ongoing even once we are out in practice, right? We continuing medical education, we read the journals, we do all the things. And B, there is some work that doctors do, isn't a lot, in terms of their communication skills. Some are obviously better at it than others. But it's part three or part C that was totally neglected. And we, we came upon this and we looked at you like, why is nobody talking about the fact that patients are not following through? They're not doing what we've recommended. And the default response to that has always been an accusation on our part of why this person is doing this, not doing what they were told. That is, A, it's overly paternalistic and B, it's accusatory. What's wrong with you? And then, of course, that patient goes home and looks in the mirror and says, why can't I diet, sleep, take the supplements, take the medicine, whatever it may be that doctors have told them to do. So that part of the continuum has been totally neglected. We realized that and it was a very big aha moment, an epiphany, because at that point we started to explore how we make decisions, not just in the doctor-patient relationship, but what is decision-making all about anyway? How do we decide for ourselves? Am I gonna exercise today? Am I gonna stay up really late? and binge watch some program on Netflix? Or am I going to do the things that another part of my brain knows is the right thing for me to do? And what I just said, I think is central to what we discovered. And that is that in a simplified way, 
the brain has a couple of areas that are involved in decision making. One area is an impulsive decision. I want to do it right now. Damn it. I'm going to do it. I don't care how it affects me or you or what it's going to play out to be tomorrow or whatever versus how does this decision right now play out for me tomorrow in the long run? How does it affect my family, my community, my planet, etc.? And there are distinctive areas of the brain that are involved in which way that decision-making goes. Austin, I think I've teed it up for you. You want to take it from here? Sure. Yeah. Just to add a little bit of color to that, there are these big questions, philosophical questions about what is a good choice? What is a bad choice? What matters in life? And I don't know that, that I am at a position where I could say, generalize, this is a good decision, this is a bad decision. But what we're talking about here is a specific instance in which our choices are not in sync with our stated long-term goals, where we have these things we want to accomplish, achieve, whatever it might be, whether it's meeting a a person that we can have a romantic relationship with, whether it's investing so that we have financial security in the future or focusing so that we can do well on the test next week. These are longer term objectives, but so much of what we do right now basically distracts us from, takes us away from making that a high likelihood of happening. So we say, I want to lose 10 pounds, but then you go and pull out a, a tub of cookie and cream from the freezer. Our actions don't reflect our long-term goals. So this is not a question of saying a good or a bad choice. It's a question of getting these things in sync, getting our actions to reflect the things that we really care about. And so that's where this concept of kind of a good or bad decision as it relates to our long-term objectives becomes reasonable again. What we're looking at here as it relates to these decisions is having a decision that is a reflective balanced decision versus something that is more impulsive. And there's a lot of research that's been done as far as what impulsivity actually means. What we're really focused on here is the ability to delay gratification, the ability to be reflective in our choices, weigh the pros and cons, and then make a choice as opposed to reacting to the environment around us. So then that gets to things like emotional reactivity, which compromises our decision-making. And what we talk about in Brainwash is, first of all, understanding a bit of the neuroanatomy behind this but really in understanding what are the factors in our lives that are making it hard for us to make those long-term focused decisions? And what are the things that are keeping us locked in these vicious cycles of short-term impulsive instant gratification type decisions? So we identify these kind of lifestyle variables that on the one hand can take us away from these long-term decisions. And on the other hand, can help wire our brain in such a way that it makes it more likely that we make the decisions that lead us to our goals. And I think that this is so fundamental for people to understand because as it relates to the way most people look at decision-making, they look at it as something that happens on the spot. So you come up to a point, a fork in the road, where you can make choice A or choice B. Choice A is in sync with your goals. Choice B is the really bad decision that you're going to regret later. And the way we look at it is you're there at this fork in the road. And the only thing that matters in that moment is your willpower, right? Do you have enough willpower to choose the right option? If you don't do that, then it's a question of why am I such a terrible person? Why am I blaming myself for all of these things? I'm, I'm no good. But the reality is that so much of that choice, the outcome you choose is a reflection of your prior brain wiring. And why that's so key is because it means that if you want to choose the healthier option, it's not a question of waiting until the moment of making the choice. 
It's a question of wiring your brain so that when you get there, you're not in this fight between these two parts of the brain, the angel and the demon, one saying, do the right thing, the other one saying, let's just eat the donut, who cares? It's a question of changing things such that when you get to that moment, your conscious and your unconscious brain are in alignment and you're not trying to force yourself to do the right thing. It goes in sync because they're both on the same page. So that's really the essence of it. It integrates with things like habit formation, which has become very popular in the last decade or so. But it's really talking about wiring your brain to make the choice, the long-term choice, the more likely choice. Yeah, and I, I love how you brought up the fact that the issue, and I, I know you said this in the book, the issue isn't that we don't have the knowledge or the wherewithal, it's that we just don't take action. And we all know what we want. And I, and I always say, the more you can narrow the gap between what you want in life and your actions, the more happier you'll be. And the problem is just like you said a minute ago, we have um, no problem making a choice that's going to push us further away from our goal just by default, right? Like you said, if you want to lose the weight, it's much easier to grab a donut or grab the pint of ice cream or pizza then it is actually be proactive, practice some patience, do what's necessary and eat healthy food. Or, but we have such a hard time on making the choices that we know subconsciously and consciously, I think that will lead us to more like a level of more fulfillment and happiness and success. So I want to break this down because I think I want the listeners to really understand from a neurological and medical perspective, why these things that you included in the, in the book are so important. And I want to start with technology from a neurological perspective. Why is scrolling mindlessly on social media, not having intention behind it? Like you guys talk about so dangerous for your brain. We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second. But first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and earth echo foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. I want to make it clear that we're not in a place where the research is so substantial that we can say social media bad for the brain. And I think there's a tendency for people to try to say that because it's what they want to be true. It's what they believe is true. But again, social media hasn't been around long enough that we can say based on decades of research, here are the negative outcomes associated with high levels of social media use. What we can say is that as a reflection of our inputs, we're getting a incredible amount of screen time. The American adult today will spend 11 hours each day in front of a screen, of which about four hours is TV time, two plus hours is social media time, and then of course a lot of computer time. So if you consider the inputs and you consider what we care about, which is the outputs, quality of life, health, happiness, we know that our outputs are a reflection of the quality of our inputs. So that really gets to the quality of what we're taking in. 
So then you look at, it's one thing to basically consume a bunch of mindless TV, mindless whatever, that is taking us away from the higher quality inputs like exercise, socializing with other people, reading a book. And so that's a clear opportunity cost. And I'd say that is probably for most people the first place to start. It's just understanding if you're spending this many hours a day doing that, paying attention to social media, whatever, you're not engaging the parts of your brain that are associated with higher level function. You're not engaging the parts of your brain that can help you to build empathy, stronger relationship, whatever your long-term outcomes are, you're not doing the things that get you closer to that. The other things though that are more concerning to me are the tendencies for media, social media, news media, whatever, to be incredibly sensationalized, to be right. negative. There's a, a strong tendency in the news, actually, in an article that we cited in our, our book, for things to become more negative over time, over the last few decades. We know that the, the news media tends to be more negative because it induces or invokes fear in us. Fear hits a primitive part of our brain called the amygdala that induces the fight or flight response, releases cortisol, epinephrine, releases a bunch of glucose, that makes us think we're under threat. So why is that so concerning? It's because of something called neuroplasticity, right? The idea that our brains change as a reflection of our environment. And when you're constantly triggering this stress-laden, fear-induced part of the brain called the amygdala, those circuits get stronger. They take us away from being able to make the long-term reflective decisions we're talking about. So in animal research, they have shown that when you induce high levels of stress, the neurons, the cells in the brain, in the amygdala kind of branch out. They make more connections. The amygdala neurons expand. It's like pouring miracle grow in the amygdala when you have high levels of stress. On the other hand, in a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is right behind the forehead and is incredibly involved, really more than any other part of the brain in helping us to make good decisions. These animal studies show that stress causes a retraction of an atrophy of those neurons. And you can actually see in humans, those who have suffered long-term chronic stress, there is atrophy or at least smaller prefrontal cortex relative to the other parts of the brain. There's also research suggesting that the connectivity or the communication pathway between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is impaired in the context of significant life stressors. So there are a lot of reasons for which the added stress, sensationalism, fear caused by paying attention to any form of media today is probably pretty bad for your brain function, probably pretty bad for your health. And then the last thing I'll say on here, getting back to this earlier point about seeing other people's opinions, about getting to a, a consensus as opposed to being polarized. If you look at the content that people consume, social media, TV, whatever, it is incredibly polarized. If you turn on, you know, Fox News versus NBC, you're going to see a totally different version of the same quote facts. Now, why that's important isn't so much that it's a distortion of reality. It's that it's polarizing us against other people. It is the exact opposite of creating what we talk about in the book, which is the several types of empathy, specifically cognitive and compassionate empathy. Now, why that's important is that empathy allows us to have strong relationships. Strong relationships are consistently associated with better physical and mental health, better brain function into our old age. So the way that I look at this is that we are compromising our health right now and our long-term health because of the fact that the news media is taking advantage of these short-term kind of fear-laden circuits that polarize us against other people, create all of this fear and take us away from the types of decision-making, the types of physical and mental health that are conducive to general wellness. So again, we're not yet at a point where I can say the research is conclusive, too much social media is bad. There are a lot of studies that have been observational studies primarily that look at social media use, look at things like mental health, look at things like depression, anxiety, and the like. And I will say there is an indication 
that it's a question of how you use it that matters. So it's one thing to mindlessly scroll on social media. That's actually associated with worse mental health. But when you use it actively, use it with purpose, meaning go on for a specific purpose, accomplish that end, that's actually associated with slightly better mental health. So I do think it's a lot a question of how we're using this and especially making sure that it's not using us. Yeah, I love that. And I think you're right. I think it all goes back to intention and how you're using it to the effect on the brain, because I th- you talk about in the book. There's, you can have interactions on social media that are very healthy. You could comment on somebody's post who's having a bad day and show some empathy to some extent. Clubhouse now, obviously, that we're seeing, you're able to connect with people through audio all around the world that you couldn't do before. You're able to meet and connect with people that normally you wouldn't even be able to connect with on platforms such as Instagram, social media, Twitter, that sort of thing. But like you said, if you get caught in this in the downward spiral of it, there's probably a correlation to decrease mental health and the amount of time you spend scrolling on social media and getting into wars over news stories, media stories that are, have these polarizing views, like you said. So David, like off to you. So like Austin really teed this up beautifully that he talked about like the problem that the media and social media has and the impact that it can have on our brains. And Obviously, the book was written pre-COVID, and there, a lot of the research I'm sure that was cited was before now, where people are spending even more time on their screen, being exposed even more to social media, to a computer screen like we're doing now on Zoom. What's the path out? Like, How can people use technology in a way that's healthy so that they don't have to cut it out like immediately if they're listening to this or reading the or even like reading something on the online. Turn us off right now. I wrote a couple of things I wanted just to to say to amplify what Austin was saying. First of all, this notion we used to have that children below the age of five shouldn't watch TV because they can't tell fantasy from reality. But at some magic age, then we can watch all these horrible things on television because we're we know that it's fake or it's just a movie, whatever. And the reality is that we do experience those things in our minds when we watch television, we watch things happen. First-hand experience, my wife and I were watching a show the other night, Virgin River, it was, we're watching this program. And the next morning, it's the first thing we talked about when we woke up. So it was in our brains all night long. I dreamed about the episode, woke up in the morning and asked, gee, what's going to happen to Jack? He was shot, all this stuff. So, you know, yeah, we know it's just Hollywood, but the point is it does become part of the brain to which other uh, thought experiences can relate to. Because we're not able, you know, we don't have a, a computer upstairs that is able to dissociate our experiences into use these for figuring things out versus abandon these. It just doesn't exist. So we're going to leverage all of our experiences in terms of understanding new novel challenges. The other thing I would mention is that as Austin was talking about the, the amount of time that people spend in front of screens, and he, he hinted to the fact that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. And that's really important because those something else things need to be done. And that gets to your question, your point, and that is, what are the off-ramps then to this situation of being locked in social media or other uh, issues in our digital world, aside from social media? that are so darn captivating and are taking us away. And in the book, you'll recall, we talked about using what is called the test of time. And time is an acronym. T stands for time. You're going to dedicate 
whatever the amount of time is to what you want to accomplish. Do you want to look up studying something, a, a medical fact or learn about a pathway or reconnect your high school friends or whatever it may be? I want to spend the next 45 minutes or an hour, whatever it's going to be, or I'm going to watch a program and that program is an hour long and then I'm going to do something on social media. Look at the time, write it down and get a sense as to how much of your waking hours is going to be dedicated to that experience. Next is I, T-I-M-E, I. And that is, what is your intention? What is your goal? What do you want to accomplish? Because I think we're all quite experienced in knowing that we can be online wanting to buy a new pair of waterproof boots on Amazon. And the next thing we're reading about something that happened last, uh, yesterday in Washington or who knows what. We know how quickly our minds and our attention can be captivated and that really our attention is sold to the highest bidder. That's clear, everybody gets that. Whatever pops up on our screen is cultivated to be most attractive to us based upon our previous browsing experience. The M in time is mindful. Do we remain on task? Do we remain you know, pretty well focused on what is our goal? What was our intention to start off with? Now have we strayed or are we still trying to figure something out uh, that characterized our initial time, dedication to the time online. And finally, E happens after the fact. E stands for enriching. Now that it's all said and done, I've signed off. Am I net positive now? Was that a good thing for me? Or am I feeling pretty crappy because I learned about this or that actress or actor who had this problem and whatever it may be, just bad news. There's enough bad news out there that you, and it's going to just make itself known. As long as you're on the computer, sooner than later, it's going to pop up. Why? Because we are attracted to negativity. As humans, the attraction we have to negativity has always served us because it allows us to identify potential threats to our health. And that's why things uh, in the news are generally negative. Far more, they have far more traction in our psyche than things that are the human interest story at the end of the news hour, right? Or a half hour program. It's always, oh, this kid baked cookies and the money went to veterans, whatever it is. And by then your amygdala, your fear center is on fire. You're, gone, you're so upset that you can't make good decisions. Now you're going to eat the wrong thing for dinner. You're probably going to stay up too late and watch television and everything has just gone down the tubes. So that's just one of the various on-ramps that we offer. Austin was talking about it earlier, this connection that is between the impulsivity areas of the brain that include the amygdala and the more adult in the room area called the prefrontal cortex. And what is really fundamentally important, I think one of the central dogmas of our book is that this prefrontal cortex exerts what we call top-down control over the more impulsive areas. And that's basically bringing the adult back into the room to make better decisions. We say we don't give uh, driver's licenses to five-year-olds, nor do they vote in, in elections because they're not quite there yet. They're not able to weigh information and make meaningful decisions. They're impulsive and that kind of characterizes these young children. But we all know that impulsivity is a characteristic of many people that we know who are adults. Our friends, people we see, we hear about, we see in, in the news, et cetera. And that is something that shouldn't significantly persevere into adulthood. But when we keep the adult out of the room to help this top-down control, to help rein in this impulsivity, when that adult is kicked out of the room, 
that's when the impulsivity center by de- basically by default takes over. Now the question is, how does that happen? And again, it's the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the more primitive areas, the impulsivity centers, that we desperately can uh, depend upon. When we become disconnected, when that area becomes, those physical structural pathways become less functional, we become disconnected from our prefrontal cortex, we act in ways that don't, as Austin said, support our goal, support where we want to go in life. And this is what we've talked about in the book, all the things that threaten that connectivity. And Austin, you sent me today, not in preparation for this interview, but you sent that article today showing this relationship between the disconnection that we talked about and impulsivity. It was exactly uh, what we talked about in the book. So you know, I think moving forward, what would be a great thing to talk about is all of those things that we can control by making better choices that disconnect us then from impulsivity and allow us to take a deep breath and let the adult make the decision for. Yeah. And I think, gosh, there's so much there to unpack, but I think for starters, I think in order to create this new normal, I think it's important for people, I'm sure to know that it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. If they're so used to having this patterning in their brain of impulsivity and working that instant gratification muscle by scrolling on social media and going for the likes, the comments, like just researching different things that aren't moving the needle. I think what happens is people might try something for one day and they're like, oh, I don't feel better. So they quit. And just knowing that it it takes some, some time to start to get the ball and the pendulum going in the other direction. And I think of it like this, at least in my understanding of your book, is that we all have a gas tank for our system. And what we all have just we all have a limited amount of emotional, cognitive, and mental capacity. And it's like, how are we using it? Because it's gonna de- we're gonna be depleted either way, but some things will deplete us, but in the long term will pay off, and some will deplete us, and in the long term will just make our lives worse, like you you alluded to a little bit in the book. And one of the things that I think people spend way too much time on that I was really happy that you brought this up was just bouncing from one diet to the next instead of looking at what the science actually says for what can actually feed you from a neurological perspective. I remember I've been in recovery from drugs for over 12 years and I used to eat like crap growing up. And I never realized the mental and emotional effects of eating processed food. Cause I was always like, eh, it just tastes good. It can't make that big of a difference until I started eating healthy. And then I would eat an unhealthy meal. And I'm like, gosh, I feel like I have a flu almost. And my therapist used to always say when I was younger, you got to eat foods that are good for your brain. I was like, yeah, whatever, man. I didn't, I was like, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. But then I read a lot of your work, David, and then just from my own experience as a trainer, I'm like, gosh, it's so true. So either one of you can take this question because I know you're both very passionate about this subject, but like, why is nutrition so important for brain function, for stress, for optimal health, and for how we live day to day? Let, Let me start with a little bit of background before we get to the nutrition. I think it is absolutely the the key subject here, but you mentioned it takes a little while to make changes. And I think that's critical. We are, all of our problems are compounding interest from making poor decisions over years, right? Over decades, many times. And then people sell us the fat loss solution or whatever it might be that invariably fails. And then we feel bad. And then we go back to the same thing in many cases, doing it even worse, not exercising, eating more junk food. That is the cycle that sells stuff, sells supplements, sells books but it's not one that leads to success as far as breaking poor behaviors. Coming back to the idea of our smartphones, one of the things that is concerning about it 
is, as I'm sure you're aware, the dopamine circuits that are involved with learning, with habit formation, are particularly sensitive to something called a variable ratio schedule. That is the idea behind the slot machine. It's that for whatever reason, I don't know why it's happened exactly, but it's a quirk in evolution where animals, including humans, their brains pay extra attention when the reward is variable. So if I gave you $5 every time you press the button, you would be so interested to continue the behavior. But if I gave you $10 sometimes, $1 other time, even if overall you made less, your brain pays extra attention to that. That's concerning because if you open your phone and there's blank number of emails or blank number of likes on your Instagram profile, that programs into your habits that you're going to want to keep doing this time and time again. So that's its own issue as far as social media. And as much as you could say a decision is a decision, not exactly. Some things are stronger as far as how they get programmed into our brains, how they get programmed into our habits. The next thing is a question of neuroplasticity again, because we have to understand that our brains are always being changed by our environment for the better, for the worse. So if you're doing something that's unhealthy, you're wiring your brain to make that more likely to happen tomorrow. If you're doing something that's healthy, you're going to wire your brain to make that more likely to happen tomorrow. That is always happening. Your neurons are always changing, but it's not like you change a couple of synapses and all of a sudden it's easy. It takes time to reinforce that. And it's especially the case as it relates to what are called habits. And I know habits, popular subject, but most people don't get into the actual specifics of what habits are. Habits are automatic behaviors. They largely live in a part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And these are things that our brain kind of offloads from our conscious attention. So they run in the background right? So it's the reason that you can brush your teeth and not have to think about how many teeth you're actually hitting with your toothbrush. Your brain is offloaded so it can think about whatever you're going to do next Thursday with friends. It takes about 66 or so days to form a new habit when you look at the research done by Dr. Wendy Wood and others. So that's really important. It means it's going to take some time to ingrain those healthier patterns, whatever they are, nutrition, exercise, not being on social media. So yeah, I would tell people all of this takes time. With that said, I think one of the most powerful ways to leverage all of this information to start making positive change is to show your conscious brain how well these things are embedded, how well these traps are embedded into your brain. So if you, for example, take your smartphone and leave it in another room, pay attention to what you feel. If you start feeling like I need to go pick it up, why is that, right? You're actually becoming conscious of those habits. And so one of the best ways to both break habits and create better new habits is to become conscious of your unhealthy habits, but then to make the unhealthy habit harder to do. It's as simple as that. If you feel you're spending too much time on social media, make it harder to be on social media. Again, leave your phone in the other room. So you're not checking it right before bed, set a timer so that you have intervals where you're not allowed to check it. You have to show your conscious brain how hard it is to resist. And over time that can actually lead to the creation of new habits. So All of that is to say, you can change your brain. I don't mean just you. Obviously, Doug, you've changed your brain, but anyone can change their brain. It isn't an overnight thing as far as our conscious representation. It is an overnight thing as far as what is happening in the brain, how the brain is being changed. And something we talk about a lot, my father and myself, is that one night of sleep deficit is sufficient to have us start making worse choices. One healthy dose of stress is sufficient to have us start making more habitual choices. So there are things that change our decision-making on a moment-to-moment basis. But then when you talk about food, and Dad, I'll turn this over to you in just a moment, 
The thing people don't understand about food is yes, it's necessary for your metabolism. You need energy comes from food, but second one being you're physically made of the food. So you're only as good as your inputs. Your inputs are physically made of the food you eat. So you want the highest quality inputs you can have. That means looking at your fats, your proteins, your carbohydrates, and ensuring that those are as good as possible. But the piece that I want people to understand is that who they are, their identity is a reflection of their food. And what I mean by that is when you question, who am I? What am I? Right? What do I believe? How do I feel? How do I think? These are processes that are influenced by the food that we eat. They're influenced by things like the microbiome. They're influenced by things like the quality of the fats that we eat, which change our brain neurocircuitry. I think that just, it changes everything because then you can go through and say, wait, does food make a difference in whether I experience depression or not? And yes, large scale studies have shown that certain dietary patterns predispose to or away from depression. Do certain dietary patterns change the way that people's brains work? Yes. Look at long-term data. You can see certain dietary patterns appear to be protective for cognitive decline, appear to improve cognition. So you can take food as far as you want to go, but we've got to get beyond the idea that food is just energy. Food is literally transforming who and what we are at any given moment. Let me follow up just what Austin said about the, the notion that food is energy. And that comes from the world of calories in versus calories out. And if you have more calories out than you take in, you're going to lose weight. Looking at food simply from a caloric perspective is, is really completely missing the boat. I, I wouldn't even glorify it by saying it's myopic. Food is information. Hmm. Food is instructing our DNA, our life code, moment to moment, changing our gene expression based upon what we choose to consume. Doug, when you're eating the junk food, you are sending maladaptive signals to your DNA that we're doing what? Increasing the production of chemicals that mediate inflammation. And why is that an issue? It's an issue because when our bodies and therefore our brains, which oddly enough are part of the human body, made from the same stuff that we make our bodies with, which is our food, when our brains are subjected to inflammation, it reduces the connection between the adults in the room and the impulsivity center. Think about that. Think of the implications of that in terms of the foods that people are eating. Inflammation is a mechanism that tends to keep us locked into impulsivity and away from being able to make more thoughtful decisions. Now, inflammation is a characteristic of the modern Western diet, which nowadays means the global diet which means that this globalization of these highly processed, high simple carbohydrate additive containing foods because of their connection to inflammation are changing the way people think around the world, locking them in to some degree to a more self-centered, i.e. narcissistic short decision-making fuse, as opposed to thinking of the bigger picture, the fact that we're all in this together. You know, one thing that happened with COVID was there was this rash of advertisement that came out wherever you looked of people saying, we're here for you, as if we're all in this together. We're in this together. And the reality is when we look at how it played out, that isn't exactly a characteristic of how it played out. No, the reality was the behaviors of people as related to what we were challenged with didn't necessarily fully reflect the, everybody's notion that we were in this together and that everybody was here for you. It, we did see quite a bit of polarization where some people dug their feet in saying, I'm going to do what's best for me. End of story. Whether it has to basically with their behaviors. 
point being that we have choices to make right now that can help us reconnect and stay connected to the adult in the room. Animals, as an example, don't really have much of an opportunity to think about long-term consequences. A dog is going to eat when it's hungry and not think about maybe I should eat more because next week I might not have food or all the things. They're just being directed by call it instinct, if you will. We have the ability to override that. That's what the prefrontal cortex is as a gift to us as humans. It allows us to override that sense that we want sugar right now. That is a sugar specifically is a very powerful drive that each and every human carries. Some people say, oh, I have a sweet tooth. I guarantee you everybody has a sweet tooth. That is a survival mechanism that is ingrained in our deepest part of our desires from uh, well be before our hunter-gatherer days. In our early primate times 14 million years ago, when we actually had gene mutations that allowed us to make body fat when we consumed fructose and allowed us to gain a little fat so we could survive during times of caloric scarcity. We're all deeply programmed to like sugar. That said, two points. The world is conspiring to take advantage of that in terms of what we are being presented day in and day out with 60% of the 2 million foods at your grocery store having added sweetener. Why? doesn't help the food any, doesn't preserve the food, it just makes us buy it because it's talking to this really deep programming that was a survival mechanism for us, much as social media is playing upon our deeply seated desire, need, if you will, to be in community. That is, you know, led to our survivability with various specializations of jobs, et cetera. So, you know, the point being that we have the ability to override that stuff yeah, I want to eat a big bowl of Captain Crunch or a short stack of pancakes with maple syrup, you name it. I'm going to decide, though, that I don't want my blood sugar on my continuous glucose monitor to go through the roof and then have a blood sugar crash at noon and not be able to think straight, gain weight, become more insulin resistant and have all kinds of stuff that happens because I happen to know that's a bad choice. Do I want it? Can I look you in the eye right now and tell you that if all things were equal, would I eat the short stack with the maple syrup? You bet I would. That's delicious. I'm not going to argue with that. But what we have this gift that says, don't do it. Now, Doug, you had a lot of things that were, have spoken to you over the years that you've now been able to bring your higher self on board to say, you know what? That's not in my long-term best interest. I therefore am not going to do that anymore. That's bringing the adult in the room. And that's really, I think, the central message of what Austin and I are talking about. Yeah, you're so right. And I think getting back to one of the points Austin made a few minutes ago, people always ask me as a trainer, what's the number one reason people don't stick to their New Year's resolutions? And I think it's because we live in a world that's so instant gratification. Give me results now. Do this diet, do this workout program, lose all this weight, see results overnight that people are used to seeing that they're used to seeing these pictures and everything else. It's sensationalized and saying, this is how it's supposed to be. And in reality, what happens is people, they think that just because they're taking a step in the right direction, that they're, they're bettering themselves, which is awesome, that it means it's going to be easy. And they forget the compounded effects, as mm -hmm. Austin said a few minutes Absolutely. ago, of what they've done to their brain, their habits, their behaviors over time. And if people can just hang on to the fact and know that it's going to be hard 
It's not going to be easy. It's going to take time, but it's sure as heck going to be worth it. They will survive and thrive in the long run because they already have this idea in their head that they're playing the long game and not the short game. And I think- Yeah, I remember my dad used to say to me when I was a kid, and I was exceedingly impulsive. He used to say that the mark of an adult is the ability to, de- to delay gratification. Yeah. And I was not, there was no way that was going to happen. I wanted it now and that was it. End of story. So it, that's what becoming adult is all about is being able to look at the, as you say, play the long game. Okay, yeah, I, I, I want to add one thing to that as well. I think you're absolutely right in that when everything is available at the touch of a button, whether that's meeting somebody on a dating site or a dating app, I should say, or ordering something to eat or ordering something you don't need from Amazon. It's really hard to convince yourself to stick to something that gives you absolutely no enjoyment, absolutely no short-term benefit. Like for example, going to the gym every day. A lot of people don't love that. Some people do fantastic for them, but some people, especially early on, it's very painful. And the body says, why am I doing this? And so I think a big piece of that is, is discovering your why, is to discover what it is that's really motivating you as opposed to what a lot of people do, which is, I want to fit into a swimsuit in two months. So I'm just going to whatever, jump on this latest dietary trend. But the way that I would characterize what you described is that people believe that just setting the goalposts a little further down the field is sufficient to change behaviors. And what they don't focus on is the fact that their brain waking up tomorrow is pretty much the same brain they had the day before. Yes, things are different, but most of the variables are the same. Those habits are still in there. Your prefrontal amygdalar function is still in there. And what it means is you can't just change behaviors because you want to. It's the question of motivation. Motivation is a finicky thing. You'll have it one day. You won't have it the next day. If that's the only thing you're relying on, it's like having a terrible employee. They show up sometimes, they do a great job, and then they're off for a week in whatever other country and you can't hear from them. You try calling them, they don't show up. That is not the way to run a company, but you have to be thinking about it in that way when you're looking at behavior change. That is why it's so essential to understand a bit of habit formation. That is why it's so essential to understand what sleep does in a positive way to regulating your cognition, regulating your emotional state. That is why in the book, we talk about things like nature exposure, not because it's just going to be super fun for everybody to go out into nature. A lot of people will enjoy it, but because when you look at research, nature exposure decreases levels of stress, uncouples the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Stress causes us to revert to our habits. Stress causes us to make worse, or I should say more present focused decisions. So the the whole kind of idea that I want people to understand is that when it comes to improving behaviors, you need more pieces on the board. You need more variables in your equation. When it all comes down to willpower, you're going to fail. Willpower or having motivation, those are just not reliable characters in the story. So what my dad and I are trying to do is get people curious about how we actually make decisions, what's going on in the brain. So you're not blaming yourself. You're not blaming other people for the bad decisions they make. You're instead saying, what might be under the surface? What might be going on in the brain? And as it relates to yourself, it's saying, here are all the things that I can do to program my brain for better decisions. So it's not necessarily saying, I wanna eat healthier, therefore the next thing that I'm going to do is join this incredibly intense diet plan. It's saying, I want to be a healthier person. I don't know if I can stick to a diet because I've failed eight times in the past. Let me start with working on my sleep. I know I can give myself that extra hour of sleep. You build a brain that's a little bit better, incrementally better because you gave it good sleep. That is now a brain more likely to stick to the healthy diet. So it's all about finding the ends, the out, the happier, healthier life. It's where we all want to get to. 
but it may not be the same path for everybody. And all of it goes through building a brain that lets you make those healthier decisions. You're, you're spot on. And I think as you were saying this, something that came to my mind is you know, your habits can either make or break you. And I love the trickle down effect of the habits you talk about in the book. Like odds are, if you sleep better, you're going to make better decisions, right? You're not going to be as stressed. So you won't stress eat, or you'll have more energy to go to the gym, or you'll be less emotionally re- reactive, or you have the capacity to go on that hike versus the alternative. If you don't get good enough sleep, if you don't get good sleep, you're going to be more stressed. You might stressful eat. You might get into a fight with your spouse or your friends. You probably won't go to the gym. And it all starts with not only your habits, but I think being able to change your environment as a whole, which is why I love how you incorporated like a multifaceted approach in your book that you can change, you can decide to make a change tomorrow. But if you're staying, still hanging around the same friends that are partying all the time, eating junk food, just being pessimistic, that it's depressing, you're still going to have a hard time, I think, because you're so used to that environment and it's, it might be a lot easier to make a decision to slip up. And then it, but if you change your environment and say, you know what, like this day, I'm going to focus on this tomorrow. I'm going to focus on this. Like you talk about in the book, then at the end of a week or two, you're like, wow, I feel so much better just in do I guarantee you if somebody just for 10 days straight, two weeks straight, just sticks to doing the things you talk about in the book, or frankly, you guys break it down very simply from a neurological perspective. Like anybody talks about with regards to meditation, sleep, exercise, nutrition, hanging out with great people, compassion, they're going to feel a hundred times better than before they started. Yeah. It's basic stuff. People <laughs> need to understand. We're, we're not talking about taking an armful of supplements. We're not talking about needing to to join some really expensive new plan. What we're talking about is just getting yourself to do the stuff that has worked for millennia to keep people in a good state of mind, to keep people in a healthy body. So it's really, again, not a question of finding that hack. It's not a question of finding the serum levels of this one thing. It's a question of having an integrative approach where any of these ends will lead you closer to that end. And Again, as it relates to habit formation, I don't think people understand that 40% of our actions each day are habitual, which means they're unconscious automatic processes. So people are trying to think about how can I become a healthier, happier person? If you don't pay attention to habits, you have almost half of the decisions you make in a day just off the table. So if you have terrible habits, that means that 40% of the time, you're just going to be making terrible decisions. And again, when you're stressed, you make more habitual decisions. So here we are in the post-COVID world, everyone's stressed. Habits are more important now than ever. We're all falling to the level of our habits. This is why you got to start by making things easy, making things just small changes to your day-to-day. And the last thing I'll say on this, habits are context dependent, right? So it's the context that triggers the habit to happen. If you can remove the context, so whether that's getting out from hanging out with those friends that are always binge drinking, or whether that's taking a different drive home that bypasses that junk food place that you always stop at after work. These things are really effective in changing behavior. They don't seem like they should be because the only variable is willpower, right? But not exactly. You have to change the context, change the behavior. And I think that it can be very straightforward. It's just making your eyes, your ears, your other senses, not appreciate the cue that triggers that habit. Yeah. And and what I, I like about the approach too, like you said, you're not peddling a bunch of supplements or products. You're just like, Hey, this is like the habits that we have seen have a correlation and improved quality of life. These are the effects it has on your brain from both a positive effect. If you do it in the healthy way or the negative effect, if you do it in an unhealthy way, 
And here, just, just try it for 10 days. And I like how you broke it down. I think it's eight days of work, if you will, and then two days of reevaluation, if I remember correctly in your book. Like, why was it, the last question I guess I want to ask to bring everything back together, why 10 days and not two weeks, three weeks, two months? Like, why 10, why was it just like a 10-day boot camp? That's it, a very good question. At one point, it was 21 days. At mm. one point, it was eight days. And I think we just tried to come up with a number that was not overwhelming yeah. that would still allow us to bring on board as much of what we know is valuable as possible. And so people could begin to see results. And as you mentioned, a couple of those days aren't really, they're not bringing anything new. It's pretty much taking stock. How have you done? What do you want to do moving forward? And the, the point I'd like to make is that when people, let's say, want to make a decision about their diet. That's certainly, I think, first and foremost these days for many people. The point is what Austin's talking about is the whole apparatus and functionality of our decision-making process that then allows you to make a better dietary decision. The process of decision-making and the anatomy, if you will, of decision-making is influenced by other things that might not necessarily on the first pass, which is why we have a 10-day plan, involve diet. It might well be that what's going to help you with your, call it willpower, or make that decision tomorrow, which you tried every morning you wake up, you're going to do it today and you never do, might be to decide to go to bed at nine o'clock, to not look at your screen at night because it has blue light, to make the room a little colder, to ask yourself, is uh, my partner waking me up with her or his leg movement, whatever it may be, and concentrate on getting a better night's sleep or concentrate on getting out in nature, maybe getting a little exercise, maybe meditating, maybe connecting with other people. All the things that indirectly then will help you make a better decision because you're actually working, which is where we start our conversation today. You're actually working on the brain's decision-making apparatus that then will translate to ultimately, we hope, making better dietary decisions, which will then facilitate better decision-making. These are other uh, on-ramps that we offer people to, for better decision-making. And you know what? Decision-making across the board, not necessarily just about health. Surprisingly, when Brainwash was first published, we heard from a group in England saying they're using this book to help people make better investment decisions as opposed to being a trader and watching the market and trying to make a quick buck, what might be a better decision-making process for me in terms of long-term investment? So it's decision-making across the board, whether it's short-term reward versus long-term goal achievement. Yeah. I think the theme of your book, it's like you, you teach people, you help inspire them to work the delayed gratification muscles and let the instant gratification muscles become weaker if you will and dissipate because most people, they work their instant gratification muscles all the time. I noticed my, I don't want to say addiction to social media because I don't think I'm addicted to it, but I noticed my screen time is way up during COVID-19. I'm training more clients online. I'm spending more time promoting my podcast and clubhouse is out now, as you both know. And I'm like, oh, now I'm on this. And I'm like, okay, I need to set some healthy boundaries because I know that I just feel, I feel my attention span has suffered as a result, just in my own experience. And I'm like, I need to, to get back out in nature. I need to get back into meditation because that really works to delayed gratification muscles. And the last thing I'll say on what you just alluded to is that I think when people think of boot camps or detoxes, it's two ways. Number one, it's like this extreme three-day thing where, all right, just do this 
you're just going to drink juice for three days and then you're going to, you know, go to the bathroom like all day, every day, and you're going to cleanse yourself out. And we, we know that over time, there's, I'm sure there's outliers in every situation. Most of the time for long-term success, it doesn't work. And then the other, like the latter, the other extreme is you do this like 90 day program or six month program and people who haven't even been able to go to the gym or go for a walk a day in their life. Or like they see this and they're standing at the bottom of Mount Everest, it feels, and they don't even know how they're going to take one step up the mountain because they're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm being asked to get to the top of the mountain without even taking a step. So I, I love how you guys did this in your book. I think even now during today's times, as we're being more exposed to digital technology, to Instagram gratification, stress, everything, it's so important for people to read your book. So where can people find out more about what you guys have going on? Is there anything that's coming out next for you too? Um, like where can people find out more about you? I'm at drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Our books are on Amazon at local bookstores, other online retailers. Austin has been hosting on Clubhouse every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Maybe Austin, I'll let you tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. You can find a lot of my stuff at drperlmutter.com. I also have my own website. It's austinperlmutter.com. And yeah, I guess as far as a, a way to engage, I know Clubhouse isn't open yet for everyone, but we do have a uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern weekly kind of brain health conversation, which we, we do on Clubhouse. And yeah, I think both of us have a lot of speaking things and podcasts and stuff coming up, but I haven't scheduled anything in person yet. So we'll see. Hopefully that starts opening up again soon. Awesome. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you both. You both are full of wisdom. And I, like I said at the beginning, it just seems like you guys have really found a way to have this father-son thing work really well. And I think it's inspiring for people in a time where relationships are falling apart, where people are being more disconnected, that you guys have utilized this time to become more connected. And not only just in your relationship as a father-son, but even through your business as trying to change the way people handle their brain health and become better human beings. And for those listening, like I recommend with many of the episodes, please, this is going to be one of those episodes that you might go back two or three times because there were so many interesting points made, so much great knowledge dropped. And if there was something that really hit home with you, whether it was something Austin said, David said, when it came to brain health, when it came to nutrition, when it came to habit forming, take a screenshot, tag both of them. I'll put their social media handles in the, in the show notes so you can know where to find them because we would love to hear your feedback and love to know like what you got out of this episode buy their books, follow them on social media. If you're on Clubhouse, make sure to check out their room on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And once again, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.